When you're in the market for a new car, you want a vehicle that conquers your daily commute, easily handles the elements, and looks great too. You need the reliability of a Toyota and the confidence that your investment will last. Why? Because after all the carpools, shopping trips, and weekends out, you want a car that still has plenty of miles left in it and holds its value for a great trade-in deal. That's where Toyota leads the pack as the number one resale value brand for 2024, according to Kelly Blue Book's KBB.com. So check out the all-new, fully redesigned 2025 Camry or test drive a stylish and affordable Corolla sedan or hatchback. And remember, when you choose Toyota, you're not just buying a car for today, you're investing in trade-in value for tomorrow. Visit buyatoyota.com, the official website for deals, for more. Vehicles projected resale value is specific to the 2024 model year. For more information, visit kellybluebookskbb.com. Kelly Blue Book is a registered trademark of Kelly Blue Book Company, Incorporated. Toyota, let's go places. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, and welcome to Happier, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to build happier habits into your daily life. This week, we'll talk about why it's helpful to enjoy the fun of failure, and we'll have an interview with Dan Harris, the news anchor and author. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I'm in New York City, and with me, in the flesh, is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who's here in New York City. Yeah, I'm Elizabeth Kraft, and although I'm usually in L.A., where I'm a TV writer and producer, today I'm so excited to be in New York, where I finally got to meet the famous Henry Malofsky. <laughs> face-to-face, here face he is. Face-to-face, yes. it was really exciting. I got to give him a hug. Yes. Uh, and also got to meet all uh, sorts of other Panoply folks yes. who I've been wanting to meet. So yes. very happy to be here at Panoply Yeah, today. and it's very exciting for us to be face-to-face face, instead yes. of talking uh, through the wires. Yes. Now, Gretch, before we dive in to try this at home, I have to ask you for an update on meeting uh, the Dalai Lama. You, uh, you were going to Australia yes. to meet the Dalai yes. Lama. What happened? Yes, I was at a happiness conference. I got to meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which was an amazing experience. Uh, the security around him is in, is insanely tight. So that was overwhelming. But and and then there he is. You know, uh, it's, it's always funny when you see really famous people for real. Uh, they look so much like themselves. They look <laughs> right. kind of like a caricature. Um, but he was great. He was full of good humor and kindness, just the way you read about. So, and you said he actually leaned on you as yes. you were walking across a plaza or something. Yeah, right? we had to go a long distance from sort of a meeting room to the place where he was speaking. He was speaking to like a 2000 person conference. And so he grabbed my hand and leaned on my arm for the whole distance. So I, I really had my moment of uh, a very close connection to the Dalai Lama. So that was exciting. That's exciting. Yes. So Elizabeth, our try this at home tip this week is to enjoy the fun of failure. 
Okay, I have to. I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around that concept. Fun of failure. How does that work? I came up with this tip for myself because I realized I'm sort of a perfectionist. I want to get everything right. I don't like to fail. And I was realizing that in terms of creating things and being willing to take risks and challenge myself is that I was being too conservative because I was really worried about failing. And so I wouldn't try something because I would be worried about failing. And I would remind myself things like, well, if I'm not failing, I'm not trying hard enough. And that's helpful. But finally, I realized I had to just embrace the fun of failure. I had to try to think about it in a different way. I had to think about it like, this is the fun part. You know, I'm just throwing the spaghetti against the wall and it's not working. And uh, so it failed and try to see it in a different way because failing is so, it's so important to be able to fail. Yeah. It's almost like when we were talking about doing this podcast, it was like, Uh okay, well, this could easily be a catastrophe, (laughs) but let's- Very public contrast. Yes. It could be humiliating, but let's have fun and just do it. And if we fail, then, you know, we will just laugh it off. Right. We're no worse off. And it's easier when you're collaborating with somebody because then you do have somebody who you can- To commiserate with. Yeah. And it's easier to make a joke. Um, Yeah, I mean, and I reminded myself when we started this, like, you just, first of all, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. Like, let's, you know, all these cliches, don't get it perfect, get it going. And, you know, one time when I was talking to somebody about this, she said to me, well, don't think about it as failure, you know, reframe it in a positive light. And, you know, and at first I thought that sounded really like a great idea. You know, don't think of it as being failure. That word is, you know, so powerful. And then I thought, no, that's exactly wrong. Because what I want to do is not try to pretend like I haven't failed. Right. Like, you know, twist myself in knots and pretend like, oh, no, this wasn't a failure when it, I when I knew something had failed. But instead to embrace the fun of failure and just to say, that's fine. It's okay. This is a, this is the fun part. Failing yeah. is okay. I mean, it's like, think about a chef. A yes. chef to do a new, make a new recipe has yeah. to yeah. try, I'm sure, many times and yeah. have it not work before he or she hits on the right combination. So without failure, you really can't have any progress. So it's should see it. Well, I'm reframing like your friends. <laughs> see it as progress. Yeah, but it's fun. It's the fun. I mean, like I've written these horrible novels that just sit in a desk drawer and people are like, why don't you try to get this? I'm like, they're so bad. Like they totally are failed novels. But I had fun. You know, well, I wouldn't say they're bad. I've read them. Well, but they're <laughs> OK. That's because you're a nice sister. <laughs> I forgot you read them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, well, I would I would say that I enjoyed them and I enjoyed the fun of failure. And uh, and I would rather do other things and, and, and put my energy towards other things. But I learned a lot from them and they were it was it was fun. Um, and I embraced the fun of failure for those. Well, I would love to hear from our listeners. Yeah. I'd love to hear from anyone yeah. who's willing to commit to trying something that they're willing to fail at yeah. and what that thing is. Yes. Let us know. Or also, if you have a story of a failure that then turned out to be an essential element of a later success. We'd love to hear about that, too. Um, So if you do try this at home, uh, let us know how embracing the fun of failure works for you. Find us on Twitter, on Facebook. Email us. uh, Go to my site, GretchenRubin.com. With every new episode, there's a whole post about that episode. And you can find all our contact info there, the phone number to call, um, in the show notes. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. I now work with a team, and I am here to say that finding the right candidate and hiring the right candidate is one of the very biggest and most important challenges to anyone who has a small business. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Gretchen. That's linkedin.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. This week we have an interview. Our guest today is Dan Harris. Now, I've known Dan for a few years. Uh, He's correspondent for ABC News, an anchor for Nightline, and the weekend edition of Good Morning America. But I got to know him because he wrote an absolutely terrific book called 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works, A True Story, which is such a fantastic title and subtitle. But Dan, before we uh, reveal the secret of how you accomplished that, tell the story of what got you started, that you, you had a big moment of, uh, of epiphany. Uh, yeah, well, at the time it happened, it was less an epiphany and more of a <laughs> meltdown. Uh, a disaster. Uh, yes. Public, public. Public, very yeah, public. Yes. I had a panic attack on uh, Good Morning America. Yes. And we'll include the link for that, by the way, for okay. people who want, <laughs> who want to see for themselves. It's pretty subtle when you watch it. Yeah. But for you... If you've ever had even just a tiny taste of panic, you see it and you say, I, that, that guy's uh, having a panic attack. Uh-huh. If you haven't, then it, it can seem subtle. Yeah. But I was in the middle of uh, anchoring what's the, the news updates. So if you've ever seen a morning show like yeah. Good Morning America, there's a person who comes on and does the headlines at the top of every hour. I was filling in as that person on this morning in June of 2004. And I was a couple of seconds into my shtick when I just I lost it. I yeah. It got my very heart, breathy. Yeah, I couldn't breathe, basically. My heart was racing. My lungs seized up. My palms were sweating. I just was freaking out. And so I had a bunch more that I was supposed to say uh, <laughs> that was in the teleprompter, a lot of more stories to do. But I just quit in the middle and, and tossed it back to the hosts of the show, Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson. And had I not had that opportunity to toss it back to somebody else, yeah. then you would have seen... A full-blown ah. flop sweat, pull the mic off, run away kind of. Uh, Albert Brooks and yes. uh, oh, right. broadcast <laughs> news. Exactly. Uh, oh, right. So that's why I think it looks subtle to some people. Because you, were, you could cut away from I cut, it. Yeah, I could cut away from it. But if I hadn't had that opportunity, it would have. There was no stopping the panic. I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack. Right. There's no. You, especially if you're on, on live air, television. Which just makes you, you panic do. all the more. Absolutely. Right. Panic is just an accelerated version of anxiety. Right. Right. Of the time, the, the voice in your head yammering at you uh, in a in a non-constructive way, in a destructive way. If you just put that on steroids, yeah. you can get a panic attack. So what was it at that mo- Why was now that reaching that point of panic attack on live television? Well, I hadn't, f- I didn't figure that out. I didn't know immediately. Right. Uh, so I, afterwards, I went to a doctor to ask, he was an expert in panic, and yeah. try to get to the root of the problem. And he asked me a bunch of questions to try to um, diagnose me. And one of the questions he asked was, do you do drugs? Uh-huh. And I kind of sheepishly said, yeah, I do. And he leaned back in his chair and gave me a look that communicated the following <laughs> sentiment, which was, okay, <laughs> uh, mystery solved. So the backstory is that I had joined ABC News as a really young 
28-year-old ag- aggressive, ambitious reporter right. and and had spent um, a- a- when 9-11 happened, I raised my hand and volunteered to go o- overseas and cover whatever happened next and, and then spent many, many years in war zones. And uh, when I came back from one of my long uh, trips in Iraq, I got depressed and started to self-medicate with ah. cocaine and ecstasy. And the doctor explained that even though I wasn't a character from the Wolf of Wall Street or anything, <laughs> but uh, it was enough right. to artificially raise the level of adrenaline in my brain and ah. just prime me to have this panic attack. So that was what was going on. And so then, because everybody's in suspense, how then did you tame the voice in your head? What did what 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 did you find worked? Uh, so it led ultimately in a weird and windy way. It led me, and so that that's all in, in the book. Uh, yeah, yeah, in the book. Yeah, so yeah, I won't no. get into and it. It's too all much. fascinating. Yeah. But the punchline is meditation, right? Which I always thought was ridiculous. You know, <laughs> just for you know people who live in a yurt or really into <laughs> right. aromatherapy and Cat Stevens and use the word namaste without irony. Uh-huh. Um, so I I was not into it at all. But then I found out about all the science that says yeah. it, it's really good for you and lots of you know, lowers your blood pressure, boosts your immune system, uh, can rewire key parts of your brain. And so, and also I learned that you don't have to join a group or believe in anything, that it's it's simple and secular and largely scientifically validated. So I just started doing it. Now I have to say in full disclosure, for Better Than Before, my book about habit change, I decided that I would try the, ha- the habit of meditation. And Dan, you were one of the people who convinced me. And one of the things that you said that was so persuasive was, well, you told me about your own experience, which was, was, which was fascinating. And then you said, I know many people who have tried meditation and many who have dropped it for whatever reason, but I don't know anybody who thought it was a waste of time. And for some reason, in my mind, I was like, that sounds really sensible. I'm going to try it. But the true confession is that I tried it and I tried to form the habit and it didn't work for me, but maybe I'll give it another shot. Yeah, I'd have to know more about what you think the block is. Yeah. And, and I I'm a, I have no problem proselytizing to large groups of people. I I get a little uncomfortable pressuring people one-on-one because there's nothing more off-putting than that. It kind of reminds me of a cartoon in The New Yorker recently. The two women are having lunch, and one of them says to the other, I've been gluten-free for a week, and I'm already annoying. (laughs) So you don't want to be... Talk to Gretchen about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, you're much more... I I think I go up against that edge much more than you do (laughs) in terms of, uh, yeah, happiness bullying. Well, meditation, you might remember, Gretchen, is what got me through childbirth. this is an amazing story. Because I did non-medicated childbirth. Why, I don't know, but I decided to do that. Yeah, that was going to be my question. And then halfway through, I just said to myself, I either have to separate from this pain or I have to get an epidural. And never having meditated before, I just completely separated from the pain. It's amazing. And held that state for two full hours. Then I came back and I couldn't get back into the meditation. But it was amazing and it was kind of one of the coolest experiences of my life. Why why do you why do you call that meditation was that It felt like meditation. I right. just sort of was in a place of um being present without thought, yeah. kind of? Or were you dissociated? This is oh, my... Oh, maybe I my, was dissociated. Ooh. I don't know. Because I think that uh, meditation is the opposite of dissociation. It's yeah. a radical association oh, where you just dive deeply into uh, whatever's happening uh, so that it doesn't uh, yank you around. And so the, the skill of meditation is not to separate yourself. It is to, as Gretchen said, to be right there with it, but in a way that suspends judgment on some level. Now, it sounds hard to do, but just imagine if you uh, have an itch. So right. let's uh, do something a lot less radical than childbirth. <laughs> um, uh, 
you have an itch and you just watch it crest and go away, can you you will have moments of like dying to itch it, but you'll uh, scratch it, but you'll also have moments of just feeling what an itch feels like. Right. And that that ability to just feel your butt on the chair, to feel right. your feet on the ground, yeah. that is mindfulness. That is uh, the fruit of mindfulness meditation practice, which is just we <laughs> we spend so much of our lives having experiences, but we're adding layers of conceptual thought, yeah. uncontrolled, unobserved conceptual thought on top of our actual sensate experience. And so what meditation does is teach you how to just get in touch with, with whatever's actually happening right now. How did you get into it? And then like, and what does it look like for you now that you've been doing it, you know, for years? So when I first started, I, I had been doing a bunch of research. This was like yeah. six or seven years ago. So I didn't, it, it wasn't like a hyped thing in the culture, right. but I was doing a bunch of research and, and the, the science was out there. So I was aware of the science and then I was reading a book about how to do it right. by John Kabat-Zinn, who's a yeah. famous uh, meditation uh, proselytizer and yeah. a molecular scientist from MIT, which gives him some heft. Yeah. I'm reading his book and I just sit down and do it. And it's not complicated. The basic introductory steps are to sit with your back straight and your eyes closed. The second step is to bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out at one spot, usually your belly, your chest, or your nose. And then the third step is the biggie, which is every time you get lost, which you will a million times, your um, your brain's just going to start thinking about what am I going to have for lunch? Why did I say yeah. that dumb thing to my uh, spouse? Why yeah. did Dances with Wolves beat <laughs> uh, Goodfellas for Best Picture in 1991? Yeah. yeah. Whatever, yeah. uh, where the gerbils run wild, it's just your your, your mind's going to go crazy. The whole game is to notice. Oh, I've gotten distracted, and to start again and again and again and again. And every time you do that, it's a bicep curl for your brain, and it it's uh, also uh, breaking a lifetime's habit of walking around in a fog mm-hmm. of projection and rumination. Right. And so I just sat on the floor of a beach house I was at with my wife, and I did it, and I realized. This is really hard, but it is also not weird. It's it is is exercise uh-huh. for the brain. That is what it is, and it requires grit. And I realized, oh, uh, <laughs> I'm going to try this. I'm going to go for this for a couple of weeks. I'm only going to do five minutes a day. Right. But then I started to see benefits very quickly. Two you big did. ones. One was just it boosted my ability to focus. Just the the daily exercise of trying to focus on one thing at a time, get lost, start again, get lost, start again, really helped me stay on task in my very competitive, stressful job where I literally have other people's voices piped into my head. <laughs> right. You uh, are hearing voices. Yes, I'm hearing voices, and they're yeah. not yeah. fake. Um, and the, the, but the big one is this thing called mindfulness, which yeah. I described in a bit of a squishy way earlier, which is just the ability to feel whatever's happening right now. But the better way to think about it is the skill of knowing what's happening in your experience or in your head right now without getting carried away by it. So yeah. think about how useful that is. Like we spend so much of our time led around uh, by our nose uh, on the string of ego, of this voice in your head giving you terrible ideas. You know, (laughs) eat the 18th cookie. Say that stupid thing to your spouse that's going to ruin the next 48 hours of your marriage. Check your email while your kid's trying to talk to you. All these things that we do that we later regret are the result of mindlessness. Mindfulness is just the ability to see what what kind of urge or impulse is uh, arising in your consciousness right now without necessarily taking the bait and acting on it. And can it help you? I mean, have you had an experience where a panic attack has started again and you've been able to let it go? When I walked into the studio, I started to feel really claustrophobic. Uh, really claustrophobic. It is. And, it is claustrophobic in here. It's dark um, and it's black. And I haven't been in a small, dark room like this in a long time. And and I and I was starting to feel uh-huh. that way. And I felt. And I just kind of 
uh, allowed myself to feel it without trying to clamp down on it, which then is usually what ah. fires things up. So, but to answer your question, I haven't had an on-air panic attack in a long time. But the reason for that, I think, is that I don't do cocaine anymore. Ah. And and I don't want to present meditation as the panacea or cure-all. There's a reason why I use the term 10% happier. Yeah. And, and with panic, is so strong, such a strong thing. Meditation is more prophylactic than it is something you can use as an acute thing. Um, right. So it, it, it creates a level of calm and mindfulness that I think... Prevent, it's preventive medicine more than something you can call on in, a, in, in an emergency. But the interesting thing about you, I think, too, is that I think there is this conception about what it means to be a person who meditates, and yet you're still a person with a lot of ambition yeah. and drive and energy, and yet you see the value for you. It's not like, I think sometimes people feel like there is this sort of temperament that is suited to it, but you're, you're, that's not the temperament that you have, and yet you found that it works for you given who you are. And, you know, there's a reason why it's being adopted by executives and yeah. athletes Army. And, and the U.S. Army and the U.S. Yeah. Marines. It's because it can make, being less emotionally reactive makes you more effective. Being less caught up in useless rumination or worry or anger or hatred is actually really additive. Now, I, I think we need to be competitive, but you can be competitive without being cruel. And I think we need to be aggressive and hardworking, but I think you can do those things without getting yourself so worked up that you come home and kick the dog. And I, I think all of that just makes you more effective and not for nothing, makes you easier to be with. Yeah. And actually that yeah. helps you in, like it or not, we live in an interdependent world where we can't get anything done by ourselves. You know, we need the people around us. And if they like you, they're more likely to help you. <laughs> and I found that to be the case in my job and in my life. If my wife were here, she I make this joke all the time, but she would give you the 90% still a moron. <laughs> so I'm not claiming perfection. I'm just yeah. better, than, better well, than before. Better than before, yeah. right? And does I, your wife meditate also? Oh, uh, interesting. Uh, no, not Ooh. with any uh, consistency. Uh, and I, just as I uh, was very careful with Gretchen yeah. earlier, I don't wag my finger at her because yeah. I know it's the shortcut for her to her, you know, never doing yeah, it. Right. So she does, She first of all, she likes what it's done to her husband. Right. She is a scientist herself, and so she really buys the science. And she, she wants to do it. She does do it sometimes, but not consistently. So Jack, my son, is going into kindergarten, and they actually teach mindfulness now in kindergarten. Oh, my gosh. Tw I think twice a week. L.A., people. <laughs> yeah. That's L.A. Here's the cutest LA. thing. That my, I have a friend in Miami whose kid uh, does it, and they call it espacio which is Spanish for space. Oh, uh, uh, super nice. cute. Uh, so her little kid comes home from uh, from school and says, Mommy and Daddy, let's do a spacio. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, Dan, thanks so much for coming. This is fascinating. Again, the book 10% Happier is a fascinating study of a bunch of different subjects related to mindfulness and happiness and meditation. And, and a good story. And it's a great read. It's a great read. Um, so thank you so much for coming by. Thank you for everything. You've been such a huge help from the beginning of this book project. So thank you. Appreciate it. There are some stories about our father's life that I truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, his retelling of the events always brings me joy. Just in time for Father's Day, I found the perfect gift that captures all his stories for our family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your father or father figure's life for years to come. 
And Gretch, you get a book of all these stories. And I love just keeping a book on the coffee table and anyone from any generation can see a story from dad, like what was his favorite toy or what was his first job? Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. Give all the fathers in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com happier. That's storyworth.com happier to save $10 on your first purchase. Okay, Gretch, I'm up with a happiness demerit You're this up. week. You're up. Um, this is one I feel like people will relate to. It's probably <laughs> not just me, and it has to do with buying plane tickets oh. in a timely manner. Uh, okay, well, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, yeah, I'm... so as you know, we're both going to Kansas City for the 4th of July yes. to celebrate Mom's birthday. Yeah. And we've known this since Christmas. Yes. Um, and I did not buy my plane <laughs> tickets until last week. And I had reasons in my mind, which is I wasn't, I, both Adam and I were starting new jobs. Yes. So I wasn't sure about yes. how many days off we would have for the 4th of July. Right. So I didn't want to commit because what if we could go longer than I thought we could? Yeah. The truth is, though, I also just hate looking at yeah. plane getting plane tickets because yeah. it's just such a hassle to look at all the different sites and compare the times uh, and the prices and then you're worried well if I don't buy it now is yeah. it going to go up $50 yeah. and this whole thing and so I just put my head in the sand uh -huh. and didn't deal with it anyway I can tell you that I paid probably two-thirds more than yeah. I would have paid had I you know January 1 just said, oh, let me get my plane tickets for the 4th of July. So I've just been walking around feeling awful that I basically uh, wasted all this money uh -huh. because I was not wanting to deal with it. Well, it's ironic because I remember at Christmas, I bought my tickets in October, which to me seemed incredibly early because you'd bought your tickets. And I was like, wow, well, this has bought her tickets already. I'd better buy my tickets. You inspired me to buy my tickets. I had a good run and then I <laughs> lost it. So I'm determined to get back on my good plane ticket schedule. And I am going to get my ticket for Thanksgiving oh, no. this week. All right. That's my commitment okay. to you. Okay. We'll hold each other accountable. What's your gold star, Gretch? Okay. My gold star is a book that I'm obsessed with that I always recommend to people. It's called A Pattern Language. It's by Christopher Alexander. And it's this very strange, amazing book where it looks at the patterns that make either homes or offices or parks or buildings attractive to people. And it doesn't look at them like, oh, this is the Art Deco style. It looks at patterns that have been identified like across hundreds, thousands of years, across cultures, that when you look at what makes people comfortable in a place, what makes a place appeal to them, like just out of their human nature, what appeals to them. And it's written in these sort of disjointed paragraphs. It has a lot of illustrations. But then I, I sort of acted on some of these when we moved into our apartment. One of his things is secret place. He said oh. there's every, every home should have a secret place that only the people who live there and their friends know about. And indeed, we have a couple secret places in our apartment. And it's funny how satisfying it is. You're just like, I've got my secret place. We remember the Cozy Club. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. When I was cozy. At, the, at the Hubbard's house. Oh, our my, next door, our across the street neighbors. Yeah, we just spent hours in the Cozy Club, which was a little nook under the basement stairs. Yes. 
uh, that Emily yeah, off uh, the garage, by the way. Yeah, so off it, the like it was not it was not like a uh, 105 yeah. in the summer <laughs> on a good day. But we spent hours in there uh, because it was our secret place. It was, and it was you decorated it, and it was your, it was your child cave. Um, and you have the mouse hole, right? Yeah, we have a mouse. We call it the mouse hole. It's it's really the cupboard under the stairs. It's it's a storage space, but that my daughter transformed into being like her American girl hangout place. And it's surprisingly satisfying, even as an adult, to go in there. But we have even other more secret places than that. Um, so anyway. So a pattern I get, language. A pattern language. Christopher Alexander. And on my site, I'll have a link to it. So if anybody wants to learn more about it or look it up, um, they, can, uh, they can check it out. And that's it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Enjoy the fun of failure. Let us know if you tried it and if it worked for you. And remember, next week is our special episode 20, which is all about hearing from you guys, our listeners. Yeah. Uh, we're very excited. Yeah. It's coming along nicely. Yeah, we've gotten great comments. Yeah, so thank you, everyone, for your contributions. But the comments have closed now. Yeah, because <laughs> right. we were getting it organized. And special thanks this week to Dan Harris. Yeah. He was wonderful, and his book is 10% Happier. Uh, we also, for today, want to thank our producer, Henry Malofsky, who I finally got to meet yeah. in person. Yay. <laughs> uh, we also want to thank, as always, Andy Bowers and Laura Mayer from Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Gretchen's on Twitter at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. And also, you can check us out on my website, GretchenRubin.com, where for every episode, I do a special post, and it'll have the links to... Dan Harris's book, uh, Pattern, A Pattern Language, which I just talked about, and read up. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and upward. This podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply.